Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. It's good to see all of you today. Um, Any of you ever get discouraged by things you see in the news? Yeah, and I'm not talking about how the news presents it, that's a whole nother subject, but yeah, I mean like this, the shootings in Florida, right, the schools and shooting in Florida, and that is such a tragedy, such a, I mean, can you imagine sending your child off to school, then getting news that there's a shooting, and then finding out that your child is gone? I mean, that's just overwhelming, right? And so to hear that, you know, 17 different children, or, and I think maybe some of those are adults, but families, you know, not only the kids gone, the, the, the kids who were there and what they experienced and then all the families and the loss, it's just so much heartbreak, so much tragedy, and so much, there's so much pain in a sin-cursed world, isn't there? Man, let me encourage you about this, just uh, this, and this isn't about my sermon, this is something that's been on my heart. Um, you know, there's a lot of response after this, right? And, and people start, you know, this political position, that political position, and arguments and all that kind of stuff. And I get it. I, I, I understand that stuff happens. But as Christians, can we not lose sight of the people, right? The people who were lost, the people who were left behind with great loss. And so let's don't, let's don't get caught up in things that cause us to become hardened to that kind of fact. We need the compassion of the Lord in these situations. Well, as I think back about my childhood and growing up, and um, there's something that I, that I now appreciate so much that my parents did for me, but I didn't really understand it at the time. I, I wasn't alert to it, uh, but by the time I was 19, I, I finally went someplace, heard the gospel, understood it, opened up my heart to the Lord, received Christ as my Savior. Uh, you know, sins forgiven, eternal life. He moves in and begins changing me and growing me, changing my perspective. And, and at some point along the way there in those early years, all of a sudden it became very clear to me something I was so grateful to my parents for. And that's that they had taught me that I was responsible for me, all right? In other words, if I made a decision, it was my decision. I had to own that decision. The consequences of that decision, good or bad, were mine. I can't, couldn't blame anybody else. I couldn't excuse myself out of it, right? I am responsible. And that was huge because what I realized is that by the way, the book of Proverbs and wisdom tells us that as parents that we need to hold our children accountable. Very important because there's a spiritual dynamic there. When we hold our children accountable and hold them responsible for their choices and actions and inactions, when we do that, we prepare them to be able to respond to the Lord. Because that's what happened to me in April of 1975 when I heard the gospel and it became very clear to me and I was told that I was responsible because I had sinned against the holy God. I was the one who had sinned against him. 
Um, you know, I disobeyed him. I'd done things I shouldn't have done. I had not done things that I should have done. I had wrong motives and wrong reasons, wrong ways, all sorts of things, right? My sins, and that I was responsible for them and accountable for them. And because I already had that understanding of life, it was not a hard thing for me to understand that I'm also accountable to God. And then that motivated me to understand I needed a savior. And so I received Christ as savior. Um, <clears throat> But that idea of being accountable and responsible, what happens in a society or a culture where we, we don't do a good job of teaching people that they're responsible? That it's somebody else's responsibility, right? Somebody else is to blame. It's not a good thing in a culture, right? And it actually leads people to do things they would have never otherwise done because they aren't accountable. And the sad thing for me is, is that if somebody grows up never having been held accountable, always being gotten you know, off the hook and this, that, never held accountable, then one day I get an opportunity to explain to them and say, listen, you are accountable for your sins, for how you've lived your life. God's going to hold you accountable. And to these people, it's like, I can't hardly even hear what you're saying because I've never seen life that way. You know? And so we do them a disservice. Uh, not to mention that the whole idea of, of what is taught when, when people buy into a random chance, evolution, everything's by chance, people are no more than complex biological systems anyway. And how can a complex biological system be responsible for anything, right? So all those things work against it. But I, I, kind of getting sidetracked there. What I want to say is this idea of being responsible, being accountable, was, is such a blessing to understand. It was a crucial realization in my life. You know, when I finally realized that I was accountable, I was responsible. Um, and so what we want to talk about this morning is another crucial realization that the Holy Spirit led the Apostle Paul to talk about. So, you know, as, as, I, as I try to decide what to preach, uh, very seldom, very seldom do I pick a topic and then go trying to look and see what the Bible says about it. Sometimes I will, if the topic is in front of us and it's important, I'll go do that. But usually I ask the Lord, lead me to a passage of scripture, right? A book or a chapter or a verse or whatever. And, and I start praying, but I brainstorm and everything's down and I keep a conversation, go with the Lord. And, and then it kind of starts to focus down to a, a passage. And then sometimes there's other things that I'll hear along the way. Oh, wow, it seems like the Lord is you know, emphasizing this. And so that's what happened with this passage of scripture. We're gonna spend three weeks on it. Um, and it's talking about a, a, how to live a life that pleases God, pleasing God with our lives. So let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter five. Page 1329 in the Bible that's in the chairs there. And we always encourage you, if you don't have a Bible with you, to pick one of those up and follow along. Page 1329. Now, let me, let me set up this passage of Scripture here. It, Paul's letter to the second, to, he didn't write a letter to the second Corinthians, did he? He wrote a letter to the Corinthians. Uh, this is his second letter to them. And one of the things that Paul was dogged by in his ministry was that there were people who said, well, wait a minute, Paul wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't with Jesus. Wait a minute, how does he have this authority? Who is he to tell us? And, and they would challenge him on that. And so Paul was off and on addressing that. And, and a fair amount of things that are said in 2 Corinthians are, is addressing that. 
And chapter four, he is addressing that uh, early on in the chapter. Uh, And then he turns to the whole spiritual dynamic of what's going on in the middle of all that. And he talks about how, you know, we live our lives and the reality of Christ in our lives and how there's more to life than what we see. There's also an unseen. There's more to life than what's happening right now. There's eternity. And so he talks about us focusing on those things. And then at the beginning of chapter five, since he just got through talking about it's not just about now and, and what we can see, it's about eternity and what we can't see yet. He starts talking about the fact that we all die. And he uses a really interesting analogy. He compares our bodies to tents. Because the thing about a tent is a temporary thing, right? When I was a kid, we grew up, I, was, I remember in Seattle, Washington, we'd go out and camping lots of weekends up on Mount Rainier and uh, the forest up there. And we had this old tent. And man, back in the day, that, that thing was heavy. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever had one of those old tents. Man, they were heavy. Right now they got magic tents, right? A little package, you go like this, and it goes, poof. That's the way it seems. But this is heavy, and my dad had to go in, you stake down the corners and take in this umbrella mechanism and push it up, and, and we'd camp. But I always remember, camping trip ended, and, and what happened is, down comes the umbrella thing in the middle, down comes the tent, we're sweeping it off, unstaking it, folding it up, and the tent gets put away. And the Apostle Paul in this passage compares our bodies to a tent that we live in. And it's a tent, it reminds us that this is just temporary, isn't it? This is not permanent. And there will come a time when our tents will be folded up and put away. And Paul talks about that and he says, while we're living in this tent, we're separated from the Lord. I mean, the Lord isn't, we aren't present with the Lord. He says, but when the tents folded and put away, then we go to be present with the Lord, okay? And that brings him to uh, the challenge that we want to look at today and over the next two weeks as well. So let's look at it. We're going to start in verse number nine. He says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body. And now remember, he's just been talking about, it's while we're alive that we're in the body, but then when the body's dead, we go on to be with the Lord. So he's saying here that we may receive the things done while we were alive in this world, done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. By the way, that last half of that verse, we're well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences, that's really a, a reference to that issue of Paul trying to assure them that, look, you know me. I am the apostle that I say that I am. I do have the authority to speak, okay? And so we're not going to focus in on that part of it, but we do, we do want to focus in on the rest of this. And what we find here is that there's a really crucial realization that we all need to have. It's not that we're gonna die, all that's part of it. The crucial realization is right there in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There's an accountability. There's a responsibility. There is a judgment of our lives that will follow our lives. 
Hebrews chapter 9 says, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. See, there's judgment that comes. And, and some Bible scholars, they aren't all in agreement about when this occurs. Some think it happens after, right after you die. Others tend to think it happens during what we would call the tribulation time while the, the church is with the Lord in heaven. It doesn't really matter. Because guess what? We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ whenever that actually occurs. Now, let's talk about the judgments that are referred to in the Bible. The Bible teaches us about two big judgments that are going to occur. And they are for two different groups of people, okay? The, these two groups of people are for the unsaved and the saved. And let me talk about that terminology just a little bit because it might be new to some of you. Uh, or some of you listening, it might be new too as well. When we're talking about saved and unsaved, here's what's, what we're talking about. Uh, it's, it's what I learned when I was 19 years old and heard the gospel and finally understood it, that as a human being, and so this applies to you as well, but it was my story, as a human being that I had disobeyed God, I had sinned against God. And Jesus says the standard's perfection, be perfect like my Father's and, per, and heaven is perfect, and the scripture we all know that we have all sinned and fallen short of that, right? And so we've sinned against the holy God. And, if, and repeatedly, not just once, but I mean repeatedly, it's a way of life for us. Uh, and so what I found myself, based on what God says in his word, is that if I were to die in that condition, I would be separated from God forever in hell. That is the penalty, okay? All right, now, the good news, the gospel, is that God loved us, right? And sent his son, the son of God, into the world to live this perfect and sinless life. And as he dies on the cross, hanging there for the father to put the penalty for my sin and your sin on him. He dies there paying the penalty in full, rises again from the dead, and then says to us, if you will place your trust in me as Savior, if you'll turn from yourself to me, that I will forgive every sin, give you eternal life, and I'll move into your life and begin helping you to change from the inside out. And uh, so when I talk about being saved, what I mean is that, that night, April 4th, 1975, when I received Christ, I was now saved from the penalty that was mine before. Does that make sense? That's where I was headed, but now I have been saved from that. And so when we talk about someone who's unsaved, we're talking about people who haven't reached that point yet. They have not yet received Christ, okay? Their sins aren't forgiven. They still face that penalty. Uh, they don't have eternal life. The Lord is not living within them. Okay, so they are unsaved. So the Bible tells us that there are two big judgments, one for the unsaved, one for the saved. The one for the unsaved is called the great white throne judgment. It's described in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, it's like verses 11 to 15, I think. And it's described as God sitting on this glistening white throne in all his holiness to judge those who have never received Christ as Savior. It tells us that, that everybody makes it, all the unsaved people who have ever lived make it to this judgment. They don't wanna be there. Says they'd like to find someplace else to go, but they don't have a choice. They are there at this judgment. Now, I don't know how many of you, and I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but have ever been in a courtroom situation where it may, the trial has happened, where the verdict's been reached, and now the judge is passing sentence. 
I have seen, I've, I've been there with other people, okay? I haven't been the one standing there. Uh, but I've been with other people and I've watched grown men stand there and shake and their face is about to cry as this judge is who holds their destiny in his hands. Fearful place to be. How much more before the holy God of the universe? And so the unsaved find themselves here. And the Bible tells us that, the, that God has records of how we've all lived our lives and he pulls out these records and he demonstrates for each of them how they have failed to measure up to his standards, how they have sinned repeatedly against him. And it will be demonstrated finally that they never received Christ either. And then their destiny is eternity in hell. That's, it's, it's horrible to think about. Okay, but so the great white judgment for those, the great white throne judgment for those who have never received Christ as Savior. Then there's the judgment seat of Christ for those who are saved. That's what we're reading about here, okay? And this is a different kind of judgment. We, we've already been forgiven, our sins are forgiven, our, our eternity is settled, we have eternal life, we're not going to hell, but nonetheless, it says right here, didn't it, that we will stand, we must all be there, all of us believers, and we will be judged not just for the good, but for the, the bad. Everything in our lives we will be accountable for. And we'll talk about how that works in just a minute. Romans chapter 14 refers to this judgment and it says that everyone will give an account of himself. You're gonna give an account of your life at this judgment. In 1 Corinthians chapter three, well, before, I, before I do that, it's there now, it's fine. Each one's work will become clear. Are you, can you fool other people about your Christian life? Yeah, for a long time you can. Eventually it comes out, you know, but after a long time. But yeah, you can fool other people, but guess what? At this judgment, no one's going to be fooled. Uh, the uh, um, the Bible talks about even the idea of being naked before him. It's talking about that everything is open. There's nothing hidden here. Each one's work will become clear. What kind of thing that you did. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it also tells us that it is possible at this judgment to suffer loss. Now, we don't usually think about that when we think about heaven, do we? No, no, heaven's happy, right? And heaven is happy. And it's going to be amazing good news. And yet somehow at this judgment, it is possible, and all of us to some extent, will suffer loss at this judgment. All right. Let me see here. All right, yeah, so let's talk about this judgment. And we're not going to take the time to, to turn the passage, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the judgment seat of Christ is described like this. It's, it's probably symbolic stuff, but he says that our life, he compares our life and the things that we do. When we do so, there's, there's what we do, there's how we do it, there's why we do it, you know, the reason, and then there's our motives, right? Our heart motives. And so all of those factors in, in our lives. And he says that our lives is like two different kinds of things, two different sets of things. One part of our lives is like gold, silver, and precious stones. That's what it would compare to. In other words, the, the, the good things we do, the right things we do, we do them the right way, we do them for the right reasons, we do it right, with the right heart motives. 
he compares that to gold and silver and precious stones, and you'll know why in just a minute. And then he, he talks about those things in our lives where we didn't do the right thing, you know, or where we didn't, we didn't do it the right way, the way we were supposed to. We didn't uh, have the right motives. We didn't, weren't doing it for the right reasons. He compares those things to wood and hay and straw. Two very different kinds of things, right? Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. And the reason he does that is because he says what's, what's going to happen, this, this idea of that how we're going, it's going to become clear <laughs> what we did and how we lived. He says all of our life, this gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, it's all going to be taken and put into the fire. And so the picture here, the, the, I think it's a symbol, but the picture is that the fire burns and what happens to wood, hay, and straw in fire? It burns up, it is consumed, it is gone. And what happens to gold, silver, and precious stones? It remains, doesn't it? It isn't burned up. It doesn't go away. And so he says this is what is going to happen with our lives, that all of our lives will be put into this fire and evaluated for what kind of thing it was. And so let's think about this. If you're a young adult here, and, and obviously this issue applies to everybody, but specifically for you who are young adults here, in our culture, there is a tremendous amount of pressure on young adults, especially as you are looking, you know, for some, hey, I want to date, I want to find someone I could marry, and so you're getting those relationships. There's a tremendous amount of pressure in our society for those couples to be sexually involved before marriage. And that's what our culture just thinks is normal, right? And so there's a huge amount of pressure there on them. And, and uh, so, but a Christian who's in the middle of this says, well, wait a minute, no, I want to do things God's way. I, I, I don't want to compromise in this area. I want to be true to the Lord in this. And so um, they say no to that. People think they're weird. Maybe somebody doesn't want to date them. The whole thing, right? And maybe there's some suffering because of it, but they hold true to that. Well, what happens when that part of their life goes into the fire? It's shown to be what? Gold, silver, precious stones, right things done for right reasons. And, and the other way, if, if they decide to give in and to make the compromise and to rationalize it and to go with the world around them, that, then that and maybe the relationship and the things that happen, because that also goes in the fire. And it's what? Wood, hay, and straw. It's burned up. It's gone. And so why does that matter to us? We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Another illustration of this would be if you and your family, you know, you have a certain amount of resources, money, possessions, time, energy, and, and you say, you know what, we want to use this to serve the Lord. You know, yeah, we're going to enjoy some stuff and we're going to have fun doing it, but we want to make sure that, you know, we're giving to the work for God. We're investing our lives in it, our time. We're involved in carrying out the Great Commission. We want to do that. And as a result, they, they do without some things. And, they, you know, they don't do things that a lot of other people do. And, and, and so when that part of their life goes in the fire, what's it shown to be? Gold, silver, precious stones. But if instead that same family says, you know what, you only live once, <laughs> and let's, let's just go for the good life here, you know, and so they take all their money, all their possessions, all their time, all their energy, and make it be about how can we enjoy ourselves now. They aren't committing any big sins, 
But when that part of their life goes in the fire, what's it shown to be? Wood, hay, stubble, burns up, gone. Okay, so this is how this judgment is presented to us. It's, a, it's an accountability and there's a making it clear what kind of life we were living. And so this uh, judgment is often referred to as a judgment for reward. You've heard the, the bema seat, maybe. You've heard that word before. The Greek word here for judgment seat, there's one word. It says bema. And um, the bema was the place, actually it had multiple purposes over the years, but in, in athletics in the Greek culture, the bema seat was where the athletes, after the race, came and received their reward, okay? They received the, the laurel crown, you know, and maybe there was an evaluation of, you know, did they follow the rules, and they did finish the race, and now here is your reward for that. Well, so this judgment seat of Christ is a judgment for reward. And the idea is that the, all that that comes out, gold, silver, and precious stones, everything that's there, that becomes the basis for a reward that's given to us. In the Bible, uh, it oftentimes refers to these rewards as crowns. Uh, it could be literal, it could be symbolic, doesn't matter, but the idea is it's a, definitely a reward. And it talks about the imperishable crown, that's for the person who, who is self-controlled and disciplined and denies themselves things in order to serve Christ, okay? an imperishable crown. A crown of rejoicing is for those people who have invested their lives in other people to help those other people grow and become who Christ wants them to be, the crown of rejoicing. The crown of righteousness is for those who love the Lord and so look forward to his return. He's coming back. And the Bible tells us that those who look forward to his return purify themselves. So there's a crown of righteousness. The crown of glory I like because it, 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 it's uh, first explained to us in the context of pastors, those who serve as pastors. There's a crown of glory entrusted to them. But I don't think that there's, it's intended to say only people who hold the office or have the job of pastor. It's for anybody who has a shepherd's heart for God's people and then, then you know, watches out for God's people and helps them to, to grow and takes that role in their lives. And, and then the crown of life is for those who have um, suffered, who have endured, who have experienced hardness, who, who have been persecuted, maybe even put to death for Christ, the crown of life. And I don't think these are all the rewards there are. I think these are just the ones that get mentioned, okay? So but the idea is coming out of this judgment, it's not all bad, it's not all us, but it is a reward as well. Those things are there. So this judgment always runs in two directions, which means our life is always running in two directions. We have part of our life, then, you know, parts of our life that are wood, hay, and straw, and we have parts of our life that are gold, silver, and precious stones. But let me say this to you. You might be looking in your life at wood, hay, and straw stuff and saying, yeah, that sure looks good. <laughs> looks like a lot of fun. Looks like we could enjoy ourselves there. Ah. Let's trade it off. We'll, we'll, just, we'll do that. We'll, we'll go with some wood, hay, and straw at the judgment seat of Christ. Let me promise you that trade-off is not worth it. And it will be a trade-off that you will absolutely regret. So let's look at this. Verse number 11. 
He just got through talking about we're going to be at this judgment. And then he says, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The terror of the Lord, is that a a phrase that you would commonly associate with heaven? Your experience in heaven? But Paul seems to say, if I understand right, I think is what he's saying. He's saying that, hey, standing at the judgment seat of Christ is terrifying. The idea of standing before the Lord as we evaluate your life, the things that everybody else knew and the things that nobody else knew, and evaluating all of those things, that this is a scary judgment. You have a reason to be afraid. Not afraid you're going to go to hell. God settled that, right? Thankfully, he settled that. But think about this. They call your name. And, And I know, I'm picturing this, okay, and we don't know exactly what it'll be like. But that is, say, call your name, and I just say for me, call Walt's name, and I come up, and I'm standing with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God of the universe, who is holier than I ever even imagined when I tried to imagine him as holy. In fact, you know, when we get to heaven, I think we're going to be overwhelmed with, how did I get here? You know, we won't be asking the question, well, what about the, no, we'll say, well, how did I get here? And we will know it's because of Jesus, but it's like, I am so not holy like him. And so the Holy One we will be standing with, the Holy One who, who is, could rightfully and actually does judge sin and the penalty of sin so much so holy that it take, you know, a person could suffer forever and it doesn't finally pay the penalty. I mean, that's how holy he is. And then he loved me. He loved me anyway, because you know, I said he loved me and he came, died. We went through all that, right? Died for me, gave his life for me, moved in, worked, his spirit within me, gave me his abilities to serve him, and is there to help me serve him and to lead me. He's there so I can succeed, right? That's who I'm standing next to. And now we're going to look at my life. Do you see how that could be a terrifying situation? Because here's, here's what's happening. Let me start on the negative side, okay? The reality is it'll be a mixture all the way. But on the negative side, so here we are. We're, we start to look at my life and, you know, I'm, the places where I'm old enough to understand and know and I knew the Lord. And he says, we look at it and I look at that and I go, oh, I'm ashamed of that. And the Lord doesn't say anything, but it's burned up, it's gone, and I realize that part of my life was wasted. Eternal opportunity, gone forever. And then we look at another, wasted. And another instance, wasted. Wasted, wasted, wasted. You know, I can't even think I want to say, I am so sorry, Lord. So much. Terrifying. The good news is that today you can make a different decision. He says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Start with yourself. Persuade yourself that today I can live differently. I can live in a way that isn't wasted, but that as we go through this and look at this, can you imagine the Lord standing here with me and then saying, hey, hey, see that? Well done. Well done. Oh, yeah, that, wow, yeah. 
That's what I made you for, and you got it. Oh, look at the difference you made here. And well done, well done, well done, well done. That's, that's available to us. So how do we do this? <laughs> what is the standard that you need to live by to hear the well done instead of seeing it gone and wasted? Let's go back here and look at verse 9. He says, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. That is the standard, to please the Lord. What pleases the Lord? This this word, um, talking about well-pleasing, the word pleasing means to give a feeling of satisfaction or enjoyment. And so the question is not, and you see, this changes everything, because when I start thinking about living my life in a way that's well-pleasing to the Lord, I, the question is not, am I satisfied with this? The question is what? Is the Lord satisfied with this? That's an amazing thought, that the Lord might be satisfied with and receive satisfaction from what we do. You know, the question is not, am I enjoying this? The question is, is the Lord enjoying this? Now let me just throw in here, lest you're thinking, oh man, now we're talking about miserable life. You're not. Because I guarantee you when the Lord is most satisfied with your life, you will be the most satisfied with your life. When the Lord finds the greatest joy in your life, you will be experiencing the greatest joy in your life. It really does work that way. But it's about, it's also this idea of pleasing him. See, it's about more than just what we want. Hey, is this a sin or not? I want to do it. Is it a sin or is it not a sin? How many of you have ever had a child? First of all, how many of you had children? Raise hands. Okay. All right. Did you ever have a time when you were trying to tell your child, no, look, this is what you need to do. This is what I expect you to do. I'm telling you, you have to do this. You have to do this before you can, whatever, right? And they finally go, oh, all right, I'll go do it. Anybody ever experienced that with a kid? Now, you're the parent. Were you satisfied with that? Did you enjoy that? Were you pleased by that? No, because that relational piece was wrong, wasn't it? And so what I want you to see is this whole idea of thinking, not about is it sin or is it not, or can I do it? Or, no, it's about Lord, what would please you. It's about a relationship between you and him. And yeah, he does reveal in his word all sorts of things that help us to learn and understand you know, what it means to please him and how to do it. But it's about a relationship. I want to please you, Lord. It's not about a list of things that somebody has given you. Now, Thinking about living my life in a way that always pleases the Lord. That starts to sound like an unattainable standard, doesn't it? Unreachable standard. But I have good news for you because I want to tell you where you're starting. Let me tell you where you're starting. God is already pleased with you. You know, when he saved you, you became a child of his. You became a child. And you know how he talked about his firstborn child? He says what? This is my son, beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And I say to you that the moment you become a child of God, God is forever pleased with you. He values you. He loves you. He wants to work in your life. 
Okay, so that's the good news. And what we need to do then is to begin to figure out how to take that relationship and then live it out in a way that not only is he pleased with us, but he is now also what? Pleased with how we live. And so let me put the standard to you this way. The standard is this. He is pleased with you, and you want him to be pleased as well with all that you do. Okay? Pleased with you and with all you that you do, God's already taken care of the first one. And you and I need to focus in on pleasing him in all that we do. So what is the standard for judgment? Pleasing him. And, and how do we then please him? How do we do that? Well, that's what we're going to focus in on over the next two sermons. Some big things that Paul talks about related to pleasing God. If you're here today and you've never received Christ as Savior, you've never been saved as I talked about earlier, man, that's your first step. You need to do that. You need to say, oh God, I get that and I believe I receive Christ as Savior. And if you're unclear on that, you have questions, either talk directly to one of us or use one of those communication cards right there, okay, and write a note and turn it at the connection center and say, could someone help me with this? I, I, I don't understand. We'd love to do that with you. Now most of us in here today probably have already received Christ as Savior. So let me, let me give you some action steps here for you. I want you to make verse number nine your words. I am making it my aim to live a life that's well-pleasing to the Lord. Put it into your own words. I want you, whether it's right now in this very moment or as you think about it consciously later, I want you to say, okay, God, listen, I, you know where I'm at. You know my life. You know my struggles. You know, but, but my desire, my aim is to be well-pleasing to you. Would you please work in my life and help me to to do that more and more. Make a conscious decision about it and talk to God about it. Then here, something else I want you to do. Next thing I want you to do is this, um, today or at the latest tomorrow, and if you forget, as soon as you remember. I want you to get a piece of paper and a pen or use your phone or computer, whatever. I want you to make a list. Not an exhaustive list, but I want you to write down Here's some things, here's some ways I'm living, things I'm doing that I, th I think are pleasing to the Lord. I am pleasing the Lord in, in these ways, I believe. And, and then make a list of some ways that you think, yeah, I know I, this isn't pleasing to the Lord. Go ahead and make that list. And then a list maybe in the middle of things I'm not sure about. I don't, I don't know if this is pleasing to the Lord or not. Make the list. Say, here's my list, God. And then start thinking, start praying, working on how do I move everything on this list into the, I'm pleasing the Lord with this. And by the way, this is an ongoing project, right? The list will change, the list will grow, hopefully it'll shrink sometimes, but, but it's this mindset of working on it, okay? And then the last thing, come back next week as we continue to talk about how we live lives that please God. Father, I thank you for your word and that you challenge us in these ways, Lord, please. I know again, Lord, it was so clearly reminded to me this week by your spirit through your word that I need to have this realization, it's crucial that I have this realization that I will stand in judgment before your son. And... Um, 
I know he already knows all what my life is like, but I guess that judgment will show me. But Father, my desire is what I just talked to everybody here about today is that my desire is that my aim would be to be well-pleasing to you. And I pray that would be all of our desires today. I do pray, Father, if someone hasn't received your son as Savior, that they would feel free to ask for help through a communication card or in person, Lord. Thank you that you work in our lives and for that, that things can change today. We aren't stuck because you have set us free. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you. You are dismissed.